I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello, and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Natalie Whittingham Burrell. I'm a public defender and legal analyst. I'll be filling in for Anna Garcia today. Our cases this week are this. A dentist sentenced to life behind bars for the safari murder of his wife. The two left for a big game hunting trip, but only the husband would return, collecting nearly $5 million in life insurance payouts along the way. But the motive wasn't merely financial, with prosecutors alleging that the dentist intended to start a new life with his longtime mistress after getting his wife out of the way. But first, a son convicted for the brutal murder of his mother and father. Police say the teen shot both his parents while they slept in their bed, using pillows and blankets to muffle the sound. Though the jury has spoken, we're left wondering, what could drive a teen to these deadly extremes? We are recording this on Wednesday, August 30th, 2023. Our guest today is Alina Burrows, a forensic expert and former crime scene investigator. Alina is also the host of Investigation Discoveries Crime Scene Confidential, premiering its second season on September 6th. Alina, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to have you. Uh, really quick, I just want to let you know that I uh, checked you out on Investigation Discovery and I love it. I love everything about it. I love the perspective that you bring as a forensic investigator. It's just great to have that side of things. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad you enjoyed the show. Antonio Armstrong Jr., AJ, has been sentenced to life for the murder of his father, former NFL linebacker Antonio Armstrong and his mother, Don Armstrong, who were found shot to death in their Houston home. Antonio Armstrong gained notoriety with his performance on the football field. Playing linebacker, the Texas A&M standout eventually had a brief career in the NFL and played in the Canadian Football League. 
Following his playing career, Antonio became a motivational speaker and advocate for health and fitness. His passion led him to create a gym, First Class Training, which he operated in Bel Air. Antonio started a family with his wife, Don Armstrong, and the couple shared three children. Police would later describe the Armstrongs as an all-American family. However, one violent act would shatter this family irreparably. On July 29, 2016, 16-year-old AJ called 911, telling dispatchers that he heard gunshots from the bedroom of his mother and father. Upon hearing the shots, AJ said that he fled to a closet in the home. Responders found Antonio and Don, who were shot in their bedroom with pillows covering their heads. Antonio had suffered one gunshot wound, while his wife Don was shot twice. First responders declared Don dead on the scene. Antonio was rushed to the hospital, where he later died. The alleged murder weapon, a 22 caliber pistol, was discovered on a kitchen counter. This weapon belonged to Antonio and was known to be in the home. Next to the gun was a note reading, I have been watching you for a long time. Come get me. Reportedly, no fingerprints or DNA were found on the gun. According to police, AJ had to disarm the home security system for authorities to respond to the 911 call. AJ was taken in for formal police questioning, where his varying accounts of events led to his identification as the main suspect. So as, as a CSI and forensic investigator, how does the police uh, naming a suspect or uh, focusing in on a suspect, how does that change the investigation? From a crime scene perspective, it doesn't change the investigation at all because crime scene investigators are still at the house, uh, suspect or not, their investigation is going to be done the exact same way. They're still likely at this point trying to look to see if there's any forced entry. Um, you know, if we have somebody alleging that there is an intruder, um, the first thing I, you know, in the top, off the top of my head is that a house of somebody with that status should be pretty heavily alarmed. You know, we're looking at uh, this year we had doorbell cams that were already in existence. So they should be looking at things like that. Do we have marks that are outside in dirt leading up to a house? If there's a fence line, do we have scuff marks on a fence of somebody hopping a fence or a wall to get into this house or, you know, looking at basically outside in? Uh, is there any indication of an intruder at that point? looking at alarms, looking at forced entry, scuff marks on doors, kick marks, cut screens, broken glass, alarm records, all of these things leading up to that point. It's really a joint investigation, mm -hmm. uh, but crime scene investigation is not going to change whether there's a suspect or not. Right. And the protocol for looking for that intruder, that's not going to change if the um, suspect becomes someone that's from inside the house, right? You're still going to do that same protocol of looking for an intruder? Same protocol will be done. You know, the only difference really at, at the point in which they identify a suspect is that they would potentially look at DNA standards or collecting things to compare to evidence that's found. Makes a lot of sense. AJ faces first of three trials in April of 2019. This ended in a mistrial after jurors were unable to reach a unanimous decision. 
Prosecutors again pursued charges against AJ, but this case was also declared a mistrial in October of 2022. However, the third case, which began in July of 2023, will come to a very different conclusion. You know, Alina, this makes me wonder and kind of think, um, have you ever been involved in a case where it ended in a mistrial or the trial went on for a long time where you have been the investigator on that case? Yes, uh, I'm sure you're aware mistrials are not that uncommon for a variety of reasons. Right. Right. And does your investigation continue on up until the time of conviction? Will you still do that uh, crime scene work if that's what's needed? Or is it pretty much over once the scene is closed out? Uh, work in crime scene will always be done as long as there's work needed by uh, a crime scene investigator. So usually the work at the crime scene will end uh, relatively soon, um, you know, as long as the house is held, because as soon as the house is released back, uh, the evidence has potential to be changed or contaminated. So the work at the crime scene itself would be done until the home is released. But then coming up to trial, as long as new suspects are potentially developed, uh, crime scene work can continue. So the third trial was initially delayed for months due to blood evidence that was discovered in June of 2023. According to authorities, they discovered Antonio Sr.'s blood on the shirt AJ was wearing when police responded to the murders. The blood was reportedly found underneath a name tag sticker that was applied by police when AJ was brought in for questioning. While AJ's defense argued that this was likely due to contamination, the evidence was allowed in the third trial. Lena, there is that allegation by the defense that the police could have potentially contaminated the crime scene. Um, first of all, can you explain to us, uh, you know, as lay people, what contamination of an item of evidence or the crime scene is? Sure. Contamination can come in a variety of forms. I think what they're alleging here is that uh, blood on the shirt could have gotten on the shirt uh, from law enforcement. Um, maybe even putting the sticker on the shirt that they somehow got blood on the sticker and then put the sticker on the shirt. I'm not sure what they're uh, going for in that angle. Uh, what I think is most critical here would be the interview of AJ, because it sounds like when he called 911, he says on that 911 call that he hears gunshots coming from the bedroom, which would be he was at a distance and then he hid in the closet. Uh, so all of those things are placing him at a great distance from his parents in no way, shape or form would he have blood transfer at any of those distances. So interview would be critical here. Did he go into the bedroom at any point in time? Did he try to render aid? Did he hug his parents? Anything where blood would have gotten onto his shirt um, in a reasonable manner. But if he says in the interview process, no, I was scared. I heard shots. I hid in my closet until police got there. Then there's no reason to have blood on your shirt. Um, obviously, police should have collected that right away and done an examination to try to determine, you know, if this blood is, a, you know, a single speck, is, is there a lot of blood? Is this potentially impact spatter or is this um, in any way just cross-contamination, as mm -hmm. the defense would allege? So what's your perspective on finding that blood evidence on the shirt all those years later after the commission of the crimes? Yeah, certainly. I think the clothing that anybody that is suspected to be involved with a crime, the clothing that they are wearing or thought to be wearing is one of the first pieces of evidence that you should collect, photograph and examine. So I can't explain a time gap of why if you're it sounds like they were looking at AJ from the start. 
Mm-hmm. All right. And, you know, the thing about when people commit crimes and they make up a story, um, they think it sounds pretty good because it's the first time they've done this. Law enforcement has responded to things like this multiple times a day for weeks and for years on end. So mm-hmm. it's the first time for them. And it might be the thousandth time that law enforcement has heard this. So this is not their first rodeo, right? right. When they respond to something like this, they're already thinking this doesn't sound right. You know, the 911 call, I, I think I remember, you know, hearing from, you know, from what you said that he had to turn off the alarm to let police in. If you have to turn off an alarm to let police in, that means the house is alarmed and it would have gone off had an intruder entered the home. Right. That tells you right there that the intruder is in the home. So it could be somebody that lives there or it could be somebody that had surreptitiously gained entry into the home and was hiding. But those two are pretty much the only likelihoods at that point in time. So law enforcement is already looking inside the house. They're thinking, hey, this call's coming from inside the house. And when they hear a story from somebody saying, um, you know, I, I heard these shots and I hid in my closet, they're they're already putting a question mark in that direction. Why are they not looking at that clo- the clothing that's worn by that person? Right. So he's a, he's a suspect pretty early on. He's got some uh, inconsistent statements, as as us uh, attorneys say, pretty early on. You would want to know what is on his clothing because that's so significant. That makes so much sense. Thank you for that. So along with the blood evidence, prosecutors presented alarm records alleging that other than the victims, AJ and his 12-year-old sister were the only people in the home at the time of the shooting. Defense attorneys sought to cast doubt on this assessment, noting the alarm system had failed multiple times in the months before the murders. It was also alleged that AJ had practiced the killings before Antonio and Don's death. Reportedly, AJ had fired his father's weapon through his bedroom floor, using a pillow and blanket to muffle the sound. Authorities claimed that AJ confessed to shooting the gun previously, and the story was corroborated by a bullet hole found hidden under a pile of socks in AJ's bedroom. It was alleged that AJ had also plotted other means to eliminate his parents, even researching how to build a car bomb and reportedly attempting to burn the family's home to the ground. Well, that was a lot. <laughs> but the 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 part the part there, Alina, that I'm really thinking about is the collection of crime scene evidence that isn't coming from the immediate crime, such as the bullet hole the older bullet hole in the floor and then what that leads officers um, to uh, to conclude and then for prosecutors to conclude that they have the right person. So how can a thorough crime scene investigator make sure that they're getting the entire story of the scene of the crime? Because that's what I'm seeing here. These people got the entire story by looking thoroughly through the scene of the crime. Can you expound on that? It's a collaborative effort, you know, Um, crime scene investigation, the the crime scene investigator that's lead should be speaking to the detective. Crime scene investigators are paying attention to evidence, right? That's their job is to look for physical evidence that is going to link a victim, a suspect in a crime scene. That's the crime scene triangle. That's their focus. A detective primarily is focusing on the people evidence, you know, uh, looking at maybe the the uh, evidence of a, a camera, a doorbell camera. They're looking at video evidence, the surveillance tapes. They're looking at people and talking to witnesses. So everybody kind of has their niche. They have what they're doing. 
And it's really imperative that those people talk. <laughs> and then they, you know, the, if the detective says, hey, you know, we don't see anybody on doorbell cam. And then the CSI says, I've looked, I see no shoe tracks, I see nothing, right? So that we need to have evidence of the people and the eyewitnesses or videos or bystanders, whatever, and that that's supported with evidence that those things go together. It is a absolute, a collaborative effort. And just like that, a crime scene investigator should say the detective, I've got a bullet hole in in the floor over in this room, and I don't necessarily know how this plays in yet. Now you need to go talk to people and then interview and figure out what's going on there. Oh, yeah. Well, this kid obviously has some experience with with a weapon that's relevant in this case. So thoroughness and communication are key. Absolutely. Prosecutors outlined a motive for the killings, claiming that A.J. was fed up with his parents' rules and restrictions, with A.J. taking extreme measures to eliminate them. Text messages were presented in court that highlighted the growing tensions between the 16-year-old AJ and his parents. Exchanges between the parents and AJ detailed the parents' frustration that AJ was smoking and partying, driving his red Mustang recklessly, and failing in school. In a group text from April of 2016, AJ's father, Antonio, wrote, I am sick of getting reports about silly crap you're doing. Last warning, AJ's mother Dawn chimed in, adding, totally agree. The way he's acting, he doesn't deserve that car. Something slow, less impressive, and old would fit his maturity. Texts highlighting similar struggles between the parents and AJ reportedly continued until their death in July of 2016. Alina, what do you see in this case so far that indicates motive? For example, in this case, the mom was shot twice and the father was shot once. Yeah. Um, you know, first, I think when you observe from the family dynamic, we see a hardworking, high performing family. Right. They they clearly put family faith first. Um, I think the bar was set kind of high in that family. So what happens when you have a a teen that maybe starts feeling like a disappointment, a failure, and your parents have boundaries and they have expectations. They hold the bar high and you've got two choices as a human. You can accept that blame yourself or you can blame the people that are holding you accountable. Mm -hmm. So when we start to look at those emotional dynamics, uh, one of the things that was mentioned is, you know, they are obviously sleeping in their bed. That's when you're at your most vulnerable state. This isn't somebody that's taking on a challenge. This is somebody you're, you're vulnerable when you're sleeping. You can't fight back. So they are vulnerable. They, uh, from what I think I, I know from this case, they were shot, they were covered with a pillow. Yes. So anytime we see victims that, that their faces are covered, this indicates immediately a known relationship between a victim and a suspect. Mm -hmm. They don't want to look at them. They don't want to see the damage they've caused, the trauma that they've caused. So immediately when we see covered victims, that tells law enforcement that our suspect knows these victims. Right then, is there, it's giving them a clue where this investigation is going. Uh, when we see a victim that has one gunshot and a victim that has two gunshots, you have to think through the process as the suspect. You have two people in bed close to each other. As soon as you fire one shot, the second party is going to wake up. Mm 
Mm -hmm. So when the second party wakes up, you are then going to potentially have to um, fire a, a, a shot to down them. Maybe that shot isn't fatal and you have to take a second shot that is fatal. So that could explain why we have one party that has that fatal wound, because the first time you have the advantage, you're sneaking up on them. You get a kill shot immediately. The second time you have lost your element of surprise. Now you're fighting a, an awake party and it might take two shots. Mm hmm. That's a good point. I was also wondering myself personally, I know the text message is a simplistic view of their overall relationship between parents and child, but mom was pretty adamant about taking away a prized possession. And if this is done by an immature person, maybe he's angrier at mom. I don't know. Absolutely. Definitely something that comes to mind. It could be either of those things, 100%. Defense attorneys for AJ tried to cast reasonable doubt on the state's case, even presenting another possible suspect, AJ's brother, the Armstrong's eldest son. Reportedly, his brother Josh had struggled with mental health issues, allegedly including paranoia and schizophrenia, and defense attorneys highlighted that he was never examined as a possible suspect. So the defense attorneys are raising something that's interesting there. And you've you've seen this in cases where uh, they'll say, oh, they set their sights on one person and ignored all evidence to the contrary. Yep. How important is it for uh, a forensic investigator or CSI to make sure that they are checking for everything to stave off that eventual argument to make sure that they've collected all of the right evidence? Yeah, uh, confirmation bias is, is you know, huge in investigations, and it's very important that you do not get tunnel vision in an investigation. Uh, that's the beauty of, of forensic science, and that's why I fell in love with crime scene investigation, because it doesn't have a stake in the game. When you lift a fingerprint, you don't know who it's pointing towards, and, and it doesn't care. It simply exists or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. uh, and the same with DNA evidence or a shoe track. It's, it's there or it's not. It's for you to find. And really, evidence doesn't fail us. The only failure can exist in the human interpretation of that evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can't look at somebody and make the evidence fit that theory, right? The evidence has to tell you the story in which direction to look for somebody. And I think in this case, investigators, you know, went for low hanging fruit. They, they really just looked at the family and said, you know, well, uh, we can more easily blame it on a family member that has a history of some mental illness or some issues. Mm -hmm. But it should be very easy to investigate that path, look for alibis, and then eliminate that and then move on. That's what the investigative process is all about. It's fine if you want to put them on that initial radar, eliminate, move on. Right, right. Jurors in AJ's third trial deliberated for around 10 hours before delivering their verdict. On August 16th, 2023, a Harris County grand jury found AJ guilty of his parents' murders. AJ was subsequently sentenced to life in prison. Though this was a capital murder case, AJ was not eligible for the death penalty due to his age at the time of the murders. He will have the possibility of parole after 40 years. Following his sentence, family members have continued to show their support for AJ. 
So Alina, you have in your work uh, gotten the opportunity to develop relationships with families. And as we see here, AJ's family, even with the forensic evidence that was there, is still supportive of him. What has been your experience with family members that maintain support of their loved ones who are convicted despite the vast forensic evidence that's against them? You know, it's it's emotional. It's an emotional decision when it comes around things like this. And I think family members who have already lost Antonio and Dawn then have the choice to now lose Antonio Jr. Or they can accept what's happened and then continue to support and have a relationship with Antonio Jr. Or do they cut him off and now they've lost three members of their family? And when we look at homicides, there are ripples, right, of victims. It's not just Antonio and Dawn that have lost their lives through homicide. The ripples of victims of homicide go outwards. And we see families uh, that are still, you know, living survivors of homicides that are also victims of homicide. And they now have the choice in front of them that they have to cope with another tragedy and trying to come to terms with the fact that a member of their own family has potentially done this. So I think it's very hard for them to come to terms and accept that. They want to see massive amounts of forensic evidence to to prove this to them so that they can grasp that. And and you come to terms with how do you how do you think of that? How do you think their own family member while you're sleeping, while you're vulnerable? That's a hard concept for a family to come to terms with. It's a hard concept for society to understand. Mm-hmm. It's actually when you put it that way kind of heartbreaking it's incredibly heartbreaking and that's Mm -hmm. why when we look at homicide everybody focuses of course on the victims that Mm -hmm. that lose their lives as being the victims of homicide but they really don't look outward and see how much farther beyond we really truly have victims of homicide here right right many victims are created by this type of act absolutely At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit HelloAlma.com Therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's HelloAlma.com Therapy60. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. 
As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Moving on to our next case. Lawrence Rudolph has been sentenced to life for the murder of his wife while on safari in the African country of Zambia. The dentist and big game hunter shot his wife to death with a 12 gauge shotgun to cash in on more than 4.8 million in life insurance and begin a new life with his longtime mistress, Lori Millerin. Lawrence got Bianca into hunting and the couple often spent time traveling to different countries to engage in the sport. Bianca had become engrossed in the hobby and according to friends and relatives, was an accomplished hunter in her own right. At times, Bianca would even travel and hunt without Lawrence's company. In 2016, the Rudolphs allegedly traveled to Zambia multiple times to hunt. The goal for the trip was reportedly for Bianca to kill a leopard. The couple only had one leopard hunting permit, so Bianca was the only hunter. The shotgun was reportedly carried by Lawrence for the duration of the hunt. According to the hunting guide, Lawrence had unloaded and cleaned the shotgun the evening before Bianca's death. On October 11th, 2016, Bianca Rudolph was shot in the chest with the Browning shotgun while the couple was packing to leave their hunting camp. A hunting guide and game scout arrived at the cabin upon hearing the gunshot. They found Bianca laying on the floor, bleeding profusely from the chest, while Lawrence shouted for help. Alina, I'm going to turn to you now. Um, this is pretty early on in the case, but as a crime scene investigator, when you have someone dying under suspicious circumstances and they are with their spouse or they are in a relationship, who do you know to usually be the first person to come under suspicion by law enforcement? Uh, yeah, it's usually the spouse. Um, <laughs> we all know that, right? Mm-hmm. Um but always in an investigation like this, you you work any death investigation like a homicide until proven otherwise. That's how investigations should work. Um, if it turns into an accident, that's that's fine. If it turns into suicide, that's fine. But we always work like a homicide until proven otherwise. That way you put the most effort into that investigation. And, uh, you know, early on in the details here, certainly. But the things that I'm logging mentally is that we have skilled hunters so skilled hunters definitely abide by certain rules when handling firearms and that is you always point them in a safe direction you always assume that they are loaded uh so keeping that in mind all right keeping that in mind the shotgun was found in a partially zippered gun case next to bianca's body according to the federal affidavit bianca's body was moved after her death and covered with a blanket The shotgun was also reportedly moved away from the body by the Zambian Game Scout for safety. Alina, what are your thoughts on preserving the integrity of a crime scene immediately after the crime occurs? Okay, so rule number one is you never cover bodies, period, because that's how you get cross-contamination. We should have learned that in the O.J. Simpson trial. Uh, Very infamously, a blanket was taken from inside the residence and taken out and covered the body, which then any evidence found on the body could be uh, thrown out in court and it could be due to cross-contamination. So uh, rule number one in crime scene investigation is you never cover bodies. 
Uh, rule number two is you don't move firearms away from deceased people. It, it's no risk at that point in time. And if there are crowds of people, you remove people from crime scenes. You don't remove crime scenes from people. So you and in this case, it doesn't sound like there were people. But even if it's just a husband and a wife and a game warden or a scout comes to that crime scene and sees that there is a weapon, you leave the weapon in place and you remove the husband from the crime scene. There is no need to touch a weapon in this case, because right now the way that that weapon stands is going to be critical evidence right here. Her body is going to be critical evidence. So two things right off the bat. Don't cover a body. Don't move a weapon. So far, not so good with starting off this investigation. Zambian police were notified and a local investigation into Bianca's death began. Lawrence claimed he was in the bathroom of the cabin when he heard a gunshot and found his wife in the cabin's bedroom. Lawrence alleged that he then tried to resuscitate Bianca, but those efforts were unsuccessful. According to Lawrence, the shotgun was still loaded from the previous day and Bianca had likely discharged the weapon accidentally while attempting to put the shotgun into its zippered gun case. I'm seeing your face, Alina. What are your thoughts on that version of events? Okay, A, we already had evidence that it was unloaded the night before. B, a skilled hunter isn't going to pack away a loaded firearm for travel. So then C, sorry, I keep thinking more things. Um, <laughs> it's very difficult. Think about a shotgun. This is not a handgun. A shotgun has a very long barrel. She shot in the chest, you said. So thinking of our skilled hunters and the rules that they follow, uh, assuming a weapon is loaded and keeping it at a safe distance and, and always pointing it away, you point it in a safe distance. I don't know any skilled hunter that's going to point the barrel of a firearm towards their chest. Thinking about this being a long weapon, that's also very difficult to do. It's not practical. Right. So if I'm going through the process of packing away a firearm, it's probably going to be perpendicular to my body or, or uh, you know, sideways in front of me it's not going to be barrel pointed towards my chest so the only way that i'm making sense out of this being an accident is if the firearm is dropped and the firearm is loaded and the firearm is malfunctioning so those three things have to be true in this case in order to have any type of accidental discharge a malfunctioning firearm that is loaded and that misfires when dropped that's the only scenario i can see making sense at this point well, um, we're going to get to it, but you're you're pretty psychic here at this moment because law enforcement does look into that. And I think you're absolutely right. Um, the shotgun was confiscated by Zambian police to perform a ballistics test. A Zambian ballistics expert and police officer stated they did a drop test of the Browning shotgun from one and one and a half meters onto cement and stated that the gun did not misfire during their tests. However, the shotgun was later returned to Lawrence Randolph. I mean, my red flags go off as a defense attorney where the gun is allegedly uh, misfiring or killing someone accidentally, you return it to the person who was alone with the decedent. So tell me what your thoughts are on so far this handling of this weapon. Right. So um, not to call into question the um, the firearms analyst, but 
definitely the firearm should have been examined to make sure that there wasn't any tampering with the firearm so that they didn't, you know, file down something to make it easier to fire, misfire, to have a drop fire, a slam fire, something like that. Uh, it sounds like they they did that. Um, if they were quick to rule this an accident um, or a, a suicide or something outside of the of, of a manner of death being a homicide, I can see them returning the firearm to the owner, um, especially if he's traveling back. Um, maybe the owner's calling and being insistent and saying, I've got to travel back. I need my firearm released. And there's some pressure there being put upon them. Uh, no, certainly it's not something that I would release. This isn't it's not a particularly expensive firearm. To me, there's no loss in just saying we're going to keep this uh, until the investigation is is full and complete. Uh, but potentially in this case, you know, maybe they did the complete investigation. They didn't find anything wrong and they saw nothing wrong with returning the firearm. The investigation by Zambian authorities concluded that normal safety precautions at the time of packaging the firearm were not taken into consideration, causing the firearm to accidentally fire. That's an interesting conclusion given the previous test. Give me your thoughts on that, Alina. Um, it's an interesting conclusion. Autopsy is going to be incredibly important here. I want to hear more autopsy details because distance is going to be incredibly important here. Um, when we look at distance determinations, right, we have contact, we have intermediate, and then we have distance, range, wounds. So obviously, if somebody is handling a firearm and it misfires, they should be in close proximity to that firearm. So we should expect a, a certain range for that wound to be. So that's what I'm interested in hearing. So the evening of October 11, 2016, Lawrence contacted the U.S. Embassy to notify officials of his wife's death. According to the consular chief, Lawrence quickly turned the conversation to cremating Bianca's body and leaving the country. The consular chief became concerned that the process was moving too fast and notified the FBI before traveling to the funeral home where Bianca's body was scheduled for cremation to photograph her body. The consular chief, who was familiar with firearms, noted that the injuries sustained to Bianca's body were not consistent with a contact wound. There was no gas burns or obvious tissue expansion. The consular chief theorized that the distance between the muzzle of the shotgun and Bianca's chest would have been around six and a half to eight feet. Well, you were right on time with that uh, because it looks like the way the body looked did not line up with a close contact shooting from an accidental discharge. Can you give us some thoughts on this? Yeah. Um, so the wound pattern really matters in this particular case, especially with a shotgun. So when you have a shotgun shell, you've got, uh, you know, pellets inside or it could be a slug. You've got wadding. Those are going to disperse. You've got gas. That is all going to play a role in how the wound looks. The closer you are to that wound, you might see some of those gases. Sometimes you even have uh, plastic or the wad from the shotgun inside the wound. If you're very close, um, you can see some of the gas on the wound itself. The further distant you are from that, the less of that you're going to see. So they're going to do distance determination. Obviously, if this wound is showing six to eight feet of distance between the end of the barrel, uh, 
it's not possible for her to have done that. If you drop it, what are you, you're dropping and you're running away from it at the same time, then it's not going to be in your chest. It would be in your back. Uh, you know, if even if you're dropping and you're turning, it's going to be in your side. It, the only even possible scenario here, and this would lead more towards suicide, is if you had a rig system where you were pulling the trigger from a distance, that would be, you know, a suicide manner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is really indicative and all pointing to a, a homicide. Right. And then I guess who would be the person to tell the story to make it seem like it was accidental or suicide? That would make them the prime suspect, I would think. Absolutely. And then, you know, if you couple that with it sounds like he's in a very big rush to get her cremated so that nobody notices this wound. uh, Yeah, that's another red flag. Right. Uh, That uh, cremation was especially a red flag because of this. Bianca was a strict Catholic who had previously voiced her disapproval after a friend's husband was cremated. The investigation led authorities to a former employee of Three Rivers Dental who stated that Lori Millerin, a manager at Three Rivers Dental, disclosed to the employee that she was in a relationship with Lawrence and had been for around 15 to 20 years. Lori reportedly told the former employee that she had given Lawrence an ultimatum, giving him one year to leave Bianca and sell his dental offices. I mean, we talked before about that motive. Can you talk to us a little bit now about how when investigation investigators see things like this, this starts to lead into understanding a potential motive for homicide? Yeah, uh, in law enforcement, we have a saying that there's typically three motives and that's money, dope and women. So here we got two out of the three. Um, forensic accounting is going to come into play here because we want to look at the the funds. We want to look at insurance policies, money transfers. You know, how is he supporting this woman? It sounds like a long term type of relationship um, and certainly gives a little um, eye towards premeditation at this point. That's a really good point. Um, why do you think that the potential for an extramarital affair gives an eye to premeditation? Well, when you said there's an ultimatum, so the ultimatum uh, that sets that ultimatums usually set time, you know, it sets a clock. Oh, I'm giving you a year to do this. You know, then this starts this this man thinking uh, I've got to do something about this relationship. Now, what still, you know, kind of is unbelievable to me is how many people would you rather choose murder over divorce? Um, I don't understand why I've seen that repeatedly. Uh, Maybe it's because religion comes into play here. Maybe it's because money comes into play here. Mm -hmm. Those are very strong themes through people's lives um, and stronger in some families than others. Uh, You know, uh, people seem to pick and choose what parts of religion they want to play a a role in their life because adultery seems to be okay. Maybe divorce isn't. Maybe murder is okay. A little bit of uh, cafeteria style on that religion there. Mm -hmm. But that to me could say has he been thinking about how to eliminate the wife right a friend of rudolph's contacted the fbi asking them to investigate bianca's death the friend described lawrence as verbally abusive and claimed the couple had multiple fights about money the friend stated larry is never going to divorce her because he doesn't want to lose his money and she's never going to divorce him because of her catholicism Within three weeks of his wife's passing, Lawrence allegedly began filing claims for life insurance policies on Bianca. 
Between January and March of 2017, Lawrence reportedly received around 4,877,744.93 in life insurance claims. And when I first read that number, it blew me away. So Alina, these life insurance policies and you've got this affair going on in this ultimatum, what are your thoughts so far on how the prosecution and investigators are building that motive, building the reason for this crime to occur? Yeah, the life insurance, obviously, uh, the time in which those policies are purchased or when they're added on is going to play a, a, a big role in the prosecution's efforts in this case. Um, that might count towards premeditation as well. When are you adding on these policies or when are you increasing the value? Uh, that's that's huge. Um, there's a lot, I think, to come into play for motive here. So, Alina, do the insurance companies ever ask for their own review of these types of cases when there's these large amounts of insurance payoffs around the suspicious death of someone? Absolutely. How much money are you talking about being on the line? And have you ever tried to get money from your insurance company just uh, for something small in your house? Mm-hmm. Insurance companies are not going to make this uh, almost $5 million payout without asking some questions of their own. So insurance companies employ their own investigators to kind of do a joint investigation alongside law enforcement. So they will either call law enforcement at their bare minimum to get manner of death. Well, they will not pay out on anything other than an accident if it's an accidental death policy, uh, or they will send investigators from the insurance company to do their own work, anything to keep from them having to pay out that kind of cash. Mm. So it's kind of like you got these two concurrent investigations going on at the same time. Absolutely. In 2020, after learning that the FBI was investigating his wife's death, Lawrence was reportedly overheard saying, quote, I killed my effing wife for you, end quote, in an argument with Milleran. You know, there's there's nothing like a statement from the defendant themselves, Alina, when it comes to establishing guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, Can you explain to the audience a bit the importance of or how devastating it is when the defendant makes a statement basically admitting that they have killed someone? I mean, I used to say that uh, the confession was the holy grail, right? Uh, A prosecution, especially a spontaneous confession or a spontaneous utterance when there are witnesses to this, that would greatly assist the prosecution in their case. Absolutely. As part of their investigation, the FBI conducted a research study utilizing the same model of Browning shotgun that caused Bianca's death. The study involved 15 female volunteers instructed to place the shotgun into a zipper case. None of the volunteers pointed the muzzle at themselves while performing the task, nor did they struggle to fit the shotgun into the case or zip the case closed with the shotgun inside. None of the volunteers were able to reach the trigger of the shotgun while instructed to hold the muzzle of the shotgun at their chest. So this goes back to what you were saying, Alina, with the mechanics of a gun like this and how the story just basically does not line up with those mechanics. What do you think about this experiment that the FBI conducted? And have you ever been privy to those types of experiments in your work in crime scene investigation? 
Yes. So this goes along with the way that I teach crime scene investigation. I call it uh, empathetic crime scene investigation. And it's your ability to put yourself in the position of the victim. Also, your ability to put yourself in the position of the suspect. If you can do both of those things, you're going to be a better investigator because it's going to tell you uh, how they moved, what they touched, where you'd potentially look for items of evidence. But the first thing that I do when I look at a case like this is I close my eyes and I picture myself being in that room, being Bianca, trying to zip up a gun in a case. And at no point in time can I imagine, you know, I'm standing at the counter and I have the gun in front of me and I've got the, you know, the barrel to the right and I've got the butt of the, or the, the barrel to the left and the butt of the gun to the right. So it's lengthwise in front. And then I just move it into the case. And at no point in time when I'm doing this or in any capacity as I'm running through scenarios, is it barrel facing towards me? You know, even if I need to stop and move something with the case and I have to rest it on the ground, I'm going to put the butt on the ground and the barrel facing upwards. So as I work through these scenarios, becoming this person, being the victim, which is exactly what the FBI did in these experiments, they just had people work these things out instead of, you know, imagining this. That's critical in any investigation to imagine yourself as the victim. What steps could have possibly been taken to put the the weapon in a place where the shot could have been fired. Empathetic crime scene investigation. I hope that you trademark that because that is an excellent way to put it and puts in my mind exactly what you're talking about. An arrest warrant was eventually issued for Lawrence on December 22nd, 2021. He was indicted in Colorado where the insurance companies were based in January of the following year. The evidence against Lawrence seemed insurmountable. He opted to speak in his own defense, testifying for over two hours. He stated, I did not kill my wife. I could not murder my wife. I would not murder my wife. He also claimed that the two were in an open relationship and were by all accounts happy. Days later, on August 1st, 2022, Lawrence was convicted in federal court for the murder of Bianca Rudolph and defrauding multiple life insurance companies. You know, of course, every defendant has the right to testify or not testify. But Alina, can you talk a little bit about the impact of a defendant testifying in a case such as this with the evidence being what it is? I think it's a risk. Um, you know, I th I'm sure that you would agree with that. And I think that's why in many cases that defendants do not testify, the um, the risks outweigh the benefits, uh, especially in this particular in this particular case with the evidence. And if that was the only statement that he gave, I don't find that that would be anything impactful enough to change a, a jury's mind. Um, I think if a defendant is going to testify, they better have a very strongly compelling statement um, they have to watch their attitude. They have to watch the manner in which they testify. They have to come across as caring and concerned um, and not come off as arrogant. Uh, those things matter to juries. That's right. That's right. Definitely true. And I, I wonder what your thoughts are on the whole, my devout Catholic wife and I were in an open relationship. You know, I try... Not to judge a, a few things. One is how people grieve because different people, different uh, age, different um, ways that you're raised, different races, different people grieve in different capacities. So I try not to 
judge people. Um, and there, there's a saying that's you don't judge how someone yells help when the house is on fire. Um, I try not to judge how people grieve. I try not to judge relationships because that is up to the two people in the relationship to decide. Mm-hmm. I have no business telling two people how they're going to conduct themselves in their relationship. So if they want to have uh, to, to remain married because that's how they feel like their religion tells them they should, but they both decide that they are allowed to live separate lives while remaining in the marriage, mm-hmm. that's up to the two of them to decide. Mm-hmm. I have no decision in anybody else's marriage relationships or what they decide to do. It's between the two of them. So um, is it something that's possible it, it sure it is. And that has nothing to do with homicide. So live mm-hmm. your life however you want, however works for your marriage. And it doesn't entitle you to take someone's life. Well said. Well, there was a lot of collateral damage from this. Lawrence's mistress, Lori Millerin, was found guilty of accessory after the fact, obstruction of justice and two counts of perjury. Lori was sentenced to 17 years in federal prison. On August 21st, 2023, Lawrence was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Bianca. He was also sentenced to 20 years for defrauding insurance companies, which will be served concurrently. In addition to the prison time, Lawrence has been ordered to repay the nearly $5 million he collected from the insurance companies, along with a $2 million fine. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast before we go we want to let all of the listeners and viewers know about the new season of alina's series crime scene confidential which airs wednesday september 6 at 9 8 central on investigation discovery This season on Crime Scene Confidential. 
As a CSI, I step into the aftermath of tragedy. 911, please get something to my office. Stop, stop, he is trying to get out when she hits him with the car. Investigate the most controversial cases. Why is Tommy Ziegler the only man who makes it out of that store alive? She had plans. Why would she end her life? There's no way. I did not do this. I was not there. And put theories to the test in search of hard forensic facts. No matter how smart you think you are, science is smarter. Anyone with a knowledge of firearms would not logically shoot themselves with a 357. It just doesn't make sense. She deserves the death penalty for killing our dad. The truth is always in the evidence. And I said, get the out of here. I don't deal with murderers. Alina, can you tell us a little bit about the show? Sure. Um, so Crime Scene Confidential looks at uh, death investigations that are controversial in nature with forensic evidence at the core. And I view my role as the host of this show as kind of a navigator and a translator through these cases. So we look at the cases and I interview people, um, attorneys, so prosecution, defense, some of the investigators that originally worked these cases, um, police, crime scene investigators uh, that talk us through being there during the time of the investigation, the evidence. And then when we get to the forensic evidence of the case, that's when I kind of switch my hats and I, I translate and I describe what this evidence means to this case, why it's important. And in the second season, you know, we really, I think the stakes are a lot higher. Um, I talk to multiple people that are convicted of uh, murder and we see people that have maybe been convicted wrongly, uh, maybe people that have been released wrongly. And mm. it's really up to the viewer to decide. Um, you know, we've talked about evidence not having a bias. It simply exists or it doesn't. And that's what I love about the show. So I'm not really there to tie it up in a bow and tell people how you should feel, if you should feel guilt that they are guilty or innocent. So I present the evidence as it is, navigate you through the case, kind of take you underneath the crime scene tape. And sometimes when we get to the evidence, if I have a hypothesis or something that's really bothering me, I'm going to go conduct an experiment of my own so that I get some firsthand information about that case. And then the viewers get to think about it. It's very it's thought provoking. Um, it, in some ways, it's shocking. Mm -hmm. uh, and I also speak to family members that are, you know, as we talked about today, also truly affected by homicide. And they get an opportunity to talk to me about who their loved ones were in their life so that the details of homicide aren't who their loved ones are remembered by. And I think that's really critical. Um, so we have some really powerful emotional conversations, you know, not just me sitting down with, uh, you know, people that are convicted of murder, but in, in one case this season, we have a, a young man who was in his mid teens when his mother was murdered and we put him together in a conversation with the man who was convicted of her murder. Hmm. And they have a conversation and, you know, both had things that needed to be said to the other party. It's just so incredibly powerful. And I'm really excited. Uh, I, I tell everybody I don't have children. I have two seasons of television. Those are my babies. And uh, I'm really excited for everybody to get to see the show that I, I love making. 
And I'm excited to watch it because that sounds like a fascinating and intelligent take on the topic of true crime and forensic investigation. So that's Crime Scene Confidential, premiering September 6th with new episodes every Wednesday on Investigation Discovery. Alina, thank you for being our guest this week. Where can people find out more about you? Oh, they can check me out on social media at Alina Burroughs, pretty much on all the platforms. And you can find me, Natalie Whittingham Burrell, at Natalie Lawyer Chick on YouTube and all other social media platforms. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast, reminding you, don't do crime. Don't do crime.